You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. That was startling. And then, so that's the north end of the runway. The south end of the runway is four mile run. So once we taper off and the water gets too cold for the warm water species, then we go down to the sewage outflow. So that water is 1,700 gallons a minute, 65 degrees Fahrenheit. It's crystal clear and it's steamy on a cold day and you can catch fish on dry flies all winter in a snowstorm. And because it's warm on the outgoing tide, all the fish out in the river follow that warmth. So you never know what's going to swim up there. You might see a school of 70 largemouth. We'll see largemouth in the winter that look like baby tuna. There used to be carp up there that you'd stand on the bridges and look down and it'd be nothing but carp. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com. Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Thanks so much for uh, joining us this time around. And I'm really excited to have on the podcast tonight, Rob Snow White. Now, Rob is from the uh, D.C. metro area. You're probably familiar with his podcast, the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. Personal favorite of mine. Been listening to it for a long time. Uh, the Potomac River Watershed, Custom Flies. He's a, he's a guide, a very busy guy, and always... Uh, Always uh, it seems like he has a story and a smile to share. Rob, thanks so much for coming on the program tonight. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. On, on a hazy day in Washington, D.C., we actually have the fog and smoke. I shouldn't say fog. We have the smoke from California and Oregon wildfires here. You know, it's funny you said that. We got that happening here, too, and up in Canada, the same thing. It's, uh, it's kind of our wind's coming out of the south right now, and I, I can barely see across the street. It's, uh, it's Yeah, and we are... Weird very far away and we have the smoke here yeah it's kind of kind of crazy how far it affects the whole continent i think right. i heard it even going into europe actually wow crazy so hey man thanks for doing this i i do love what yes. you're up to and um really excited to have a chat so I, just so you know rob normally on this show i i kind of hit the rewind button and take it back to the beginning and find out first off how did you come to discover fly fishing how, how did the journey start for you so I grew up in, we call it a place called Reston. It's not a town. It is a community that was planned by a guy named Robert E. Simon. So R-E-S for his initials, Reston. And it has four artificial lakes. I believe there's only two natural lakes in all of Virginia. So there were lakes and streams and just woods all around us. And I grew up with my dad just taking me out fishing and then in 1984, we moved to a house that was right across the street from Lake Audubon, which was the largest of the lakes. And pretty much from the age seven on, I'd be down there all the time fishing. And then eventually, I'm going to say fifth grade is when I picked up my brother's fly rod and broke it going out the door to use it. 
And I started fly fishing then when I got it fixed. It was a Cortland rod in a box from Sports Authority. And I actually still have it. Uh, I think it's actually in my car right now as a spare rod right now. That thing was originally bought in 1988, maybe, 87. Okay. It's old. And then my brother's buddy, Mac, who has been on my podcast, he's the guy who sort of first told me about fly tying and showed me casting and stuff on the lake. He lived a couple miles down the street, and he would ride his bike over on Saturday mornings to the lake, which was next to the pool where my brother had swim team. I didn't really like competitive swimming, so I would just walk around and fish in the mornings, and I'd hang out with Mac. Hmm. And his family fished in Pennsylvania, and he trout fished, and we grew up together. My dad would take him and my brother and I out to the Shenandoah River in the summers, and we'd all fish together. And it probably wasn't until the last day of college that I put down a spinning rod and fly fished fully. Yeah. What, if you had to name a couple of people that influenced your fly fishing kind of as the learning curve took off, you know, and, and now with everything, it could be off of social media or it could be, um, you know, you, maybe you didn't even fish with these people, but who influenced your fly fishing if you had to name a couple people? So Mac Hodell and his nickname growing up was Kip Martin. It may be the podcast with Kip Martin. I don't know. Uh, then I graduated from college and went into a fly shop and it had a help wanted sign. And the manager was the guy named Stone, John Corrigan. I have no idea where he is. And Stone was a huge influence. Every minute I was working with that dude, I was asking questions. The first day in that shop, I was so nervous even to sell a woolly bugger to somebody. <laughs> and we would go out fishing till the birds were up in the morning and then go home, get an hour's sleep and be back in the shop. And then that night we'd go out striper fishing all night again. It was crazy. And through the shop, I met a, a fly tire named Bill Skilton out of Pennsylvania. I should be having him on my show soon. And he grew up with all the guys from South Central Pennsylvania. And I really learned a form of fly tying with artificial materials through him. Mm -hmm. And additionally, while I was at the store, uh, this guy named Tom Kassan started working there. He was like five or six years younger than me. He was in high school. And we just went fishing all the time. And I learned so much about everything from him. I take pictures of his fly boxes when we go out because they're so immaculate. <laughs> the guy is very precise in everything. Your fly box doesn't look like that? My, no, my fly boxes, they're a mess. Yeah, me too. They're getting stepped on in the boat. and I'm not using foam. These are just like ones you'd put like pills in or craft store stuff. So when you step on them and the lid's open, they go everywhere. And it's getting to the end of the season for bass stuff. So there's just bass flies and worms everywhere. Those were the, the major influences I, I would say would be uh, through... Mac growing up and then Tom and Stone at the store and Tom Stone and I just, I mean, shenanigans all the time fishing for years and then everyone's gone their ways and then Bill, but pretty much everything for me was self-taught. My dad wasn't an angler. Everything was what I either learned in books at the library growing up or at, you know, the Orvis store at Tyson's corner where I spent a couple of years working there. Right on. There's, I worked in a fly shop growing up too, and then it was such a huge influence. It's such a kind of a hub of kind of what's going on and getting the lay of the land and figure out where the fish are biting. It's just such a great, great, I just hope we never lose that. You know, with all this online stuff, we still need that brick and mortar. I had access to 
such a wealth of information there. It was not just the customers that came in, but just the knowledgeable staff. Back then, that fly shop, it was one of the smallest Orvis stores in the country, but the most profitable. I mean, it was maybe the size of a 7-Eleven. And it was basically run by trout bums. Mm-hmm. And we sold women's clothing so we could fish on nights and weekends. Uh, and the fly shop was nuts. We had a full fly tying section, everything. It was, and you just, people came in and you just talked. Yeah, exactly. And then that's great. what, I, that's how I always felt. This is like a glorified coffee shop. We should start charging for coffee. Yeah. You know, you know, speaking of that, I want to take a few minutes to get to know you away from the water, Rob. You ready for a few uh, kind of random questions, like to get a feel for, for your neck of the woods? Random is my forte. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk tunes. So when you are on the way to the water, uh, wherever you're headed in your truck or car, what are you listening to? So I only have a couple of bands on my actual phone. My iPods are still loaded. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of mid to late 80s dead shows this summer with Brett Midland in them. A lot of YouTube, too, while we're cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a Sarah Bareilles fanatic. My wife knows that I've got a thing for her. <laughs> her last two albums are just nuts. All so right. singer-songwriter Sarah Bareilles, very cool woman. I got to see her right before this all shut down. Cool. Listen to a Canadian band called Bedouin Sound Clash. Oh, yeah. Yep. Out of Montreal. Mm-hmm. They're fantastic. I've got some... Uh, so we've got a style of music from Washington, D.C. called Go-Go, and it's not found anywhere else in the world. And the godfather is Chuck Brown. He passed away a couple years ago. But there was a local band in Northern Virginia called Virginia Coalition, also known as Vaco. And it was Southern Rock with DC Go-Go. And we've been listening to a lot of that recently. My wife despises Go-Go. That sounds interesting to me. It's a lot of thumping and bongos and percussion. Cool. Yeah. And then... That's when I'll catch up with podcasts. But yeah, I've got... Let me take my phone right here. There's only a few. Uh, Ride is one of my all-time favorite bands out of Oxford, England. Mm-hmm. They are uh, known as shoegaze because they play with so many pedals when they, they're they always looking at their feet. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of Sam Cooke. And then another Canadian band, Throwback, from Montreal. I don't know them. Yeah, so pretty much chill singer-songwriter stuff. Yeah, not so much jam bands anymore. Yeah, no, I hear you. It it's always evolving, right? And you're probably like a lot of people, pro- pretty diverse, right? I mean, could be just about anything, maybe on the way to the water. Yeah, you never know. But if it's Saturday or Sunday mornings, it's usually NPR. But I always have to have pull-in music when I'm pulling into a spot. If the song is not right to set the mood, mm-hmm. I will sit there and just keep fast forwarding, and then I need backing in music for the boat ramp. <laughs> Okay, I like it. It's gotten weird. What one go-to fly pattern you can't live without? And I know you do a lot of tying, but if the you had Snow to, White Damsel, that's the one. The I Snow White you... Damsel is, yeah, you need to fish that in your still waters. We uh, we caught a bunch of schoolie stripers on that the other day, and I'm currently prepping. I've got striped bass trips all weekend, so I've got a whole set of ostrich plumes. I'm cutting the plumes off, measuring them, counting them, and putting them in a foam holder. But that fish has caught everything from six and a half pound snakeheads to steelhead, gar, carp. I, I don't know what the fish think it is, but it is simple and it just works. If we're fishing for shad on the Potomac, absolutely that fly will outfish things 99% of the time. Any other fly. I don't know what they think it is. 
Probably stands out in the water real well too, being white. It's chartreuse, mostly so oh. I can see. It. Oh, sorry, I thought it. Uh, yeah, okay. chartreuse ostrich plume, and it's really hard for me to get them. Wopsy does not do professional discounts to fly tires, just jig makers, mm-hmm. and they are my preferred ostrich dyed plume. Okay. So when I go through a fly shop that's got nice ones, I just buy them all up. Right. I got seven of them on the way back from summer vacation. When you're not on the water and you kind of want to get your fix in fly fishing, talk to me where you get your fix. Is there a, a fly shop locally you like to head to, a coffee shop, a watering hole? Where do you get your fix when you're not in, in your waders? So it would be tonight, actually. We would be wrapping up fly tying right now at the Tidal Potomac Fly Rodders monthly beer tie. So once a month when there's no pandemic, I host with my club a happy hour socializing networking event where we all tie flies as well. And I teach a free fly tying class. I provide all the tools, materials, and people show up and they fill their boxes. And it's a nonprofit that's doing it in a bar with no light, so it's nothing real fancy. Hmm. It might be San Juan Worms to Sucker Spawns. We might actually do hobos sometimes. And we actually just got a bright lamp in February for the March meeting. And it was super bright, and that was the last time we were together. Let's talk sports. Where, where do you get your sports. fix in sports? Like, are you a uh, a Nationals guy, Capitals, Wizards, uh, you yeah, NFL so guy? Talk to me. I am super disappointed there's no Big Ten this year. I married into an Ohio State family. Mm-hmm. I should say my wife is the Ohio State. My in-laws don't really understand American things. So college football for us on a Saturday, guide trips are definitely scheduled around Ohio State games. <laughs> That's when we do a lot of entertaining, fire pit, TV out back. That's not happening right now. Right. So I've got uh, English Premier League, and I've been following Everton for I don't know how many years, but I work on weekends, so I miss the matches. Matches like today, I can't watch. I just don't have time to really follow sports anymore. It's yeah. kind of – I don't even know who the starting lineup you know, was on Saturday for the first day of the premiership for Everton. What about DC United? You follow DC United? So I used to be huge DC United. My supporters club is the Barra Brava. Okay. And we had section 135 to I don't know how many. So we were the guys with smoke bombs, and I was in the drummer section smoking cigars. And it was 90 minutes of absolute chaos. It was some of the most fun that I've ever had in my life. The tailgates would start about eight hours early. We'd be out there roasting lambs on spits and setting up kegs. It was incredible. And then again, I started 10, 11 years ago now. I started doing this full time. And there went my weekends for uh, tailgating and going to matches. (laughs) Life gets in the way, right? Yeah. So you're doing this full time now? So you're, I mean, when you say between podcasting, guiding, that's what you do. My only source of income is through fly fishing. Wow. And it's a little harder now because I can't do day trips when my kid would be in school. Right. That's rare. Do you find that's rare in this industry? Like most people I talk to, it's not their only source of income, it seems. Right. I would like to have something where I could get, you know, a little more income, but I, the time right now with my daughter being home, I just can't go out and get like a part-time fall job. How many kids you got? Just one. Yeah. We got one kid. We How got old? an aquarium behind us. Aquarium. You got Two kids goldfish. in the aquarium. There you go. No, she would be down here looking at the aquarium if she wasn't asleep. 
That's good stuff, man. You can't, you can't, Jeez. you don't get the rewind button on that stuff either, right? No, but my kid is unable to entertain herself. So she only had an hour of online instruction today. So by 10 a.m., I had her until I went to the grocery store at like five. Hmm. It was a long day. If you had to single out the biggest lesson, Rob, that you kind of distilled down your takeaway from fly fishing what it brings to your life kind of, is there one single lesson? I know that's a big question, but is there something that you uh, say, Hey, yeah, that's, this is what it does for me. I recently watched the Joe Humphreys documentary on Amazon and he says, look up when you're fishing. It's like, everyone's looking at the water. They're never looking around. And that's what I get to do while my clients are fishing. If I'm not exactly watching their flies, I'm watching the bald eagles and stuff. Take in what's around you other than what you're just focusing on at the time. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cool things around where we go fly fishing. Even with the dirty places I go, look around. There's some pretty crazy stuff going on. Well, you, as far as I understand, are you not the only kind of DC Metro guide out there? Yeah. If you want to hire somebody, you're going to have to drive two hours west, minimum, maybe to Mossy Creek Fly Shop or up to Pennsylvania to Spring Creeks or Western Maryland. There are local guides, but nobody does it locally. Hmm. Whereas you know, they're spending two, three hours in the car. I'm there in 15 minutes. Yeah. No, it's, it sounds like you've got a real great niche market going on. I, I mean, <laughs> you must, you've obviously got a big population base and, uh, you know, getting in the car or the truck and driving for two hours is not always, not always easy. So I could see that being going over real well. Yeah, some people might live five minutes or a short walk from where we're going. Hmm. And they can just hop, skip, jump down there. I've had clients show up on bikes. Well, talk to me about urban fishing. Like, for me, sometimes the places you drive by every day are some of the best, and you don't take a second look at them. That's what I've been realizing in Columbus, Ohio, before I talk about locally, but my wife grew up in Columbus. And I just started fishing the creeks there. And last weekend, I saw the largest freshwater fish I've ever seen. It looked like a manatee. It was a carp that I probably couldn't put my arms around. Hmm. And this was just a creek, and no one's fishing it. And I caught a huge smallmouth upstream from there at a bridge. And yeah, people just drive over all these urban waterways in downtown Columbus. And it's sort of, they do that here too. When we're fishing for shad, there's thousands of cars going by us, honking at each other all morning. And they have no idea. That below that bridge, at that exact moment, there's probably 30,000 fish swimming under the bridge just in that second. And another second, 30,000 more fish may swim by. Hmm. Meanwhile, it's just graffiti and garbage and litter and helicopters, weirdos. <laughs> I mean, there's always something that's going to – we had to help a little kid who flipped his kayak on Saturday afternoon. Ah. And my neighbor was at an observation deck and saw the whole thing. Wow. It's pretty, pretty cool. And well, at least you're there to help, right? That's neat. Yeah. And the thing about my job before COVID is I, you know, for shad fishing all day long, those fish are migrating through. So I dropped my daughter off at school. I have a client from nine to 11 on his way to office because he maybe works with a California company and he gets to go in late and then I'll get someone coming in on for two and a half hours on their lunch break and then they leave and then someone comes down, you know, with their shirt undone, their tie in their pocket and a pair of 
boots on and they just left two hours early from work to fish with me. And they're right next to their office that they can do this on their lunch break. Yeah, that's, I used to, you know, what's funny is I used to do that every day. I used to work like 20 minutes north of here and I would stop every day at a boat launch. I'd go in early and just fish. It's amazing how that kind of clears the mind and kind of sets the slate for the day. Absolutely. Except you go in stinking like shad. <laughs> well, you're assuming. All those fish you're catching then are just smelly. <laughs> but you're catching Another fish. benefit and reason to wear gloves. Yeah, and I handle a lot of them and I just stink. I've never caught a shad in my life. We don't have them in, in my area. But fill in the blank for me. Right, yeah. They're... I will fill that blank in. Okay, fill, fill in the blank. When I'm not fly fishing, I'm usually doing what? We're usually cooking and getting ready to entertain people. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of entertaining, which has been put on hold, but we have some socially distant neighbors that we're close with, and they're not really close with other people. So I come home from guiding and it's park the boat and go turn on the smoker or get the cocktail shaker out or get the oven warmed up. And we just, it's, it's something about this neighborhood I live in that all of our free time is socializing. It's mm -hmm. amazing. Talk to me about meat sweats. You're the only guy I know I've ever heard of that uh, named his meat smoker. So I want to know all about this. Dial me in on this. Yeah. So you eat too much, you get the meat sweats. You just, it. You're lethargic. It's like when a bear has dug a hole in the ground and put a carcass in it and then comes back and eats it and then falls asleep, meat drunk in that hole. <laughs> I've had the bacon sweats before. That was at the Lancaster fly fishing show. So I had about two pounds of bacon that morning. Really? And oh, I was, I, we were very hungover. Well, learned a lesson, a very good lesson at that show. <laughs> and yes. So the meat sweats is, is upstairs in the carport and my neighbor yesterday was telling us how she was going to go broil some wings in her oven. And I was like, uh, no. And I convinced her to go get the wings and I smoked them for her. And my neighbor Don uses it so often that he buys all the pellets. Right. We like to eat well here. Actually tonight was the first time I can remember eating just a frozen pizza with a family for dinner where we'd actually make something from scratch. Hmm. Bizarre. <laughs> so a lot of a lot of eating, a lot of cooking is going on. And the reason we bought this house was for entertaining. Right. To have people over. And no one's coming in. No one's using the back porch that's screened in. So it's kind of odd. We just hang out on the driveway. Well, I just let's I just hope this stuff comes to an end sometime soon because I know exactly where you're going with that. I, I feel you on that. Let's um talk about uh jobs. Best job you've ever had are you are you doing it right now or is it something you've done in the past i've had a lot of strange jobs i've been a cheesemonger cheese so you can monger. ask me any you can ask me anything about cheese you want i could probably answer it <laughs> i would have to say working at orvis tyson's when i was in my early 20s was just some of the most fun i've had in my entire life just the people i met coming through there because it's dc You'd show up and Dick, you'd, you know, Dick Cheney's at the register tapping his fingers because he's waiting for help. Hmm. Just interesting folks would come through. But that, I mean, I was just, I was single. Gas was under a dollar, dollar US uh, a gallon. And I lived in an apartment with my college roommate. And I just fished for trout every weekend and then warm water stuff weeknights constantly. Hmm. Seven days a week year round. Sounds all right. 
It was fun. We would, we had fun. All of us. It was like a big family that worked there. Just trout bums. Yeah. No, I think. Uh, I mean, fly shops are great for that, right? I mean, there's no doubt about it. And you've all kind of got the same. That's one thing I find, and it comes up on the show a lot, but uh, ever since I started this podcast, I'm just blown away by how easy it is to pick up the phone, call somebody you don't even know, and have a pretty normal conversation like you've known somebody for a long time. Has that been your experience with the with the show? Yeah, there's a couple. Last week, Sven Diesel, I felt like we were just hanging out in Rutherford, my neighborhood, and chatting about fishing. Yeah, I listened to that uh, on the way to work today. It was a good show. I, I actually Thank tried you. to get him on before, but he's yeah, he's uh, he's an artist. Yeah, and I felt the one with uh, Eduardo Garcia was a little weird. I think I focused too much on his injury. He lost his hand in a hunting accident where he got electrocuted, and it's bionic. Wow. And I thought he was going to tell more about his injury, but it was about two minutes. So I didn't really have a whole bunch of questions. And then I found out he was a huge fisherman during the podcast, and it threw me off. That was an awkward one for me. But a lot of people – I've actually have met a lot of the people who I interview – they're people from the industry that I've known for years. Every Saturday at Orvis Tyson's, we would have some big name person come in and give a talk. Yeah. And I still have relationships from then. And then a lot of people I'd meet at shows or through Project Healing Waters when I had time to volunteer. A lot of the people, fortunately, I know and can discuss beforehand, like what we're going to talk about. and yeah. Like Art, he's going to be on probably tomorrow night talking about terrestrials. Cool. That's just a laid back conversation with him. How often do you drop a show? Is it weekly or more than that? It's about once a week. Yeah. Sometimes I have three ready to go, like three weeks ahead. I'll just do three interviews in a week. And then sometimes I skip one or I just don't have time to do one. Yeah. I just wrote one l- last week on grayling. Everything you ever wanted to know about grayling. Hmm. And that should hopefully record Wednesday. Well, my daughter's got online class. I, I do the same thing. Like I'll, uh, I, I've, have you found with like with COVID and, and all things are changing very quickly. So it's like, sometimes you don't want to be like eight weeks ahead because it's almost not relevant. Right. Like when, when COVID hit, I had all these shows in the bag and, and all these guys are saying, I'm going bone fishing here and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. <laughs> it's like, and then, you know, you're trying to air these shows and it just didn't make sense in the time frame. Yeah, it's like watching TV and stuff now when people are hugging and all sorts. You're just like, well, that's just weird. What's the thing? What's, like, you can't do that. What do you miss the most with COVID? Like, is it the handshake, the high five, the hug? What is it? I what do you miss? never liked handshakes. Really? Oh, yeah, I'm that's big, just gross. My, I used to work for a consulting company. I'm pretty sure Edward Snowden was on my floor at the time. Wow. Uh, he was working for DARPA. We had DARPA on my floor. Right. And that was the neighborhood. But most of the guys in that job just would leave the stall and just walk out the door. Oh, I see. See, I don't, and I never think of that. <laughs> the boss would edit your paper in there. You'd see him come out with these blue folders under his arm and just walk out. And you're like, oh. Right. Yeah, so I don't miss that. I miss the socializing. Like our, when I talk about my neighborhood, the pool in the summertime, every Friday night, we have a themed potluck happy hour. And it starts at 7. And it goes till the kids have to be gone by 845. And if there's a pool board president or member there, we'll stay till 1030, 11 at night with a fire pit, just drinking and eating awesome food. And hanging out at the pool was huge. And just the neighborhood. Our kids are all growing up together. And it's just hard for them, especially having a single kid. 
not having her be able to play with kids other than just like outside. Right. Yeah, for sure. I, he just reminded me of something. I, I, when I started listening to your show, a lot of them were kind of based and I'm going to this show, this fly show this weekend and, and this one and, and it'd be kind of like you'd be in your, you'd be in your car and you'd be talking about the night before the beers you drank, the food you ate, and I just I got a kick out of it because it was almost like a diary. And I don't know if you're still doing it that way. It seems like you've kind of changed it up a bit. Maybe I'm going back a ways. Yeah, I'll skip around. Was I'm not getting to travel so much anymore. But a lot of people like the steelhead trips what we do with Thomas and Jason and Andrew and Scott. They mm-hmm. like the sort of day by day how those go. Yeah. What, what made you start the podcast? Like, was there, why did you start this whole journey? So I used to listen to, originally it was just Zach Matthews and two guys out of Utah, Mike Overton and Wiley Thomas. Mm -hmm. And it was, I can't remember the name of it. And that was before I started. And I would listen to the, you know, the two of those binge listening, driving up to the Salmon River. I didn't have a kid, so I'd go up to New York all the time to go steelhead fishing with friends that lived up there. I'm like, you know, I could, I could talk like that. I tried to be a writer at the time. I submitted one story only to three magazines after we went to Idaho. And it was just, just crazy three days in Idaho. I think it's what the article was called. I was like, I just don't want to deal with grammar and mm. punctuation and writing properly. And then somehow bring it back to DC United. We got a whole bunch of speeding tickets going to the stadium. And I emailed the local radio station traffic guy about it. And he responded with, hey, on side topic, do you commute to work? Because the traffic guy in D.C. is retiring after 30 years. And I want to commute with somebody just to hear them and interview them. And Adam Tuss, who's now the regular anchor on the big news station here, he metros to my office and we ride home in the Miata. And he interviews me and it's on the radio two days later. And I'm like, I don't sound that bad. (laughs) And then somehow we were driving back from my wife's parents' condo in Breckenridge, Colorado. And I was like, let's make a let's make a fly fishing clothing and product line. And then somehow from that it went into I'm gonna just record some stuff and put it on iTunes and see what happens. And that was eleven years ago now. Eleven years ago. Shoot, I didn't yeah. know you've been doing it that long. Wow. It was just Wiley and Mike. Zach, myself, and then Rosenbauer popped up. Right. Hmm. And Wiley and Mike used to have this guy, Norm Albison. He was a professor somewhere in Utah. And it was absolutely fascinating to listen to this guy talk trout fishing. He was so analytical. And he had this great mathematical reason why you should always order medium pizza versus large. I'll never forget that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's funny. And then I realized when you've got a microphone at a show, it kind of takes away the inhibitions. You can just walk up to anybody and start talking to them and asking them questions. Yeah, it's true. We used to walk around with a laptop and a microphone cord before I got a handheld for those shows. Mm -hmm. What are you using now for all your interviews? Are you, I mean, most of them, I, I assume you're doing most of them from home right now with everything, but yeah. Basement office, I have the MacBook plugged into the modem, so I don't have any Wi-Fi issues, and then an ATR USB mic plugged directly into the MacBook, right. and then my producer gave me a nice little microphone stand when I stopped by his house a couple years ago. Cool. So you actually His neighborhood have, is where they make peeps. So you Can't. actually have somebody 
and produce your show. You don't necessarily produce it yourself all the time. Oh, I, I send it to Jason and he does all the all that. He <laughs> emailed me once out of the blue. He's like, "Hey, man, I'm this fly fishing dude in Pennsylvania. I love music. I'm into audio, and I think we could make your podcast sound a lot better. Why don't you send me the files and I'll clean them up?" And he did all of that. And now we go fishing all the time. We save my daughter's hand me downs for his daughter. He and his wife adopted three kids. Mm-hmm. And there's two boys and a girl. So we give all of our hand-me-downs to her. And yeah, I wish Jason and I had more time to fish together. We're going to do some, some fishing this winter. I don't think we're going to get trout fishing or steelhead, but we'll do something. And then he comes down here every once in a while before he had kids. We go shad fishing. I got a picture of him in the Washington Post last year. We're chatting with Rob Snow White out of uh, the dc metro area fly fishing consultant podcast i this is kind of a weird question but i'm really curious what's your least favorite thing about podcasting if you had to pick one sometimes when i I edit for content so i do the content versus quality and art says um every three words (laughs) we all have those crutches though right right there are definitely some vocal crutches out there. Oh, yeah. I've got For me, lots. sometimes it's just it's trying to get some of the old timers on. There's some people that are like, a podcast, what's that? And then you're like, Skype. And they're like, Sonny, can you ring me on my Klondike 555 number? <laughs> that just don't understand it. Or people that are into it, and then they just ghost you. Yeah, that happened. That happens. Uh... Well, it used to happen to me more, but yeah, I, I don't get that either. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm up for it. I'm up for it. I think, I think people that haven't done a lot of podcasts get nervous too. Do you find that? So, uh, I've had a couple of people that apparently are not public speakers. Right. Just don't like being a public. I'm like, I can just, you know, if they're local, I'm like, I'll just drive to your house and we'll just talk with a microphone just sitting on the desk. Well, that's just like a it. regular conversation. Can you talk on the telephone or Skype? It's like a regular conversation. There's really nothing. And I, I get, you know, you get kind of the anticipation of the call and that. But once you cut five, ten minutes into the conversation, you forget what you're even doing. Right. Hmm. And then I've had people say, I don't do podcasts. And then three weeks later, they're on a podcast. Yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? Yeah, no, same. And I'm trying to give these people free global advertisement to them and the companies and products that support them. Why wouldn't you want that opportunity? Hey, if I could, I would go on a hundred thousand podcasts related to anything because that's the that's probably the best way to get listeners. Yeah, one of my buddies, Tim, out of Chicago, I was supposed to go on his friend's podcast at the beginning of this. They were going to talk about me and my weird job and weird things I see, and I was like, we could do hours. And I don't know what happened to that. Hmm. I know you like to ask that question. What's the weirdest thing you've seen on the water? Or not even on the water. What's? I see some weird stuff all the time. Yeah. We saw a squirrel swim across once. Today we had a monarch butterfly hatch with only four legs hmm. in our front yard. I see, I think it's just, I'm more observant. I will see all sorts of just bizarre things, especially when I'm out and about. Maybe it's just where we are. But we'll see. Like, I saw a naked woman under an overpass going to get Gatorade a couple <laughs> years ago. Okay. Uh, my goodness. The stuff we find is just crazy, too. Yeah, I bet. Just from where I live. Uh, well, you'll be walking down to the river, and there'll be somebody passed out in the 
kudzu. Do you know what kudzu is? No. It's a Japanese vine that grows and blankets everything in the South, and nothing eats it. It's like an edible pea flower you can eat, but this stuff just covers everything. Oh. And you'll be walking out, and you'll just see some drunk dude just shirtless with no shoes and his pants, like, hanging on, just sleeping. And they'll ask how, how many fish we caught and if we're going to eat them tonight. And then you talk to them, and then they just close their eyes and go back to sleep. <laughs> we encounter – there's weird, like – people in the woods that'll just come up to us and start talking. It's It's never a dull day when I'm out on the water. If it's not for the cool nature, it's just some of the weird things that we encounter. Well, that's that urban urban setting, right? Like that's not a common thing when you're fly fishing normally. Right. This one guy wanted to do some kind of narcotics. And I was like, dude, I'm going to work. He's like, when you're done, come up here. We're going to, I don't know what he wanted to do. I think it was like smoke crack or something. He's like, then we'll go get uh, nachos. I was like, we can go get nachos regardless. Like, I don't need to be on crank or anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Crazy. So what's your favorite thing about doing the podcast? What do you like the most? I get to talk to people that I otherwise never would have talked to. There was an event at Project Healing Waters, maybe the 10-year anniversary at Rose River Farm. And Lefty Cray, it was a cold day, and Lefty was inside an RV getting warmed up and then couldn't get out. So he was locked in there for 45 minutes banging on the doors. And it was kind of funny when he came out. And then he's like, I need some fresh air. So he, there's, it was a catered event for dinner, so there's all these little round tables and under a tent like there had been a wedding. And I just sit, sat down with Lefty, and we just started talking. And I said, do you mind if I just record and ask you some questions? And an hour later, someone interrupted us. And I was like, that may have been one of the craziest things that's ever happened. Meanwhile, like Tom Brokaw stole my beer the night before, but I just sat down with Lefty Cray. <laughs> hold on a second. Hold on, hold, hold on, hold on. You, <laughs> just back up a second. Right, right, right. Tom Brokaw stole your beer the night before? So he, he was the keynote speaker. and He had just come in from Belize. I think he flew into Richmond maybe and they drove him up. And... It was the happy hour before the start of the event on the Saturday night. And so people were crowding around Tom Brokaw. And I had just come out of that RV that Lefty was going to get locked in the next day. And I had a cold Shiner Bach. And someone said, hey, uh, you know, can we get you a drink? And he's like, well, well, well sure. What was that? I was like, well, I just opened this. He's like, well, thank you. And he just reaches over and just grabs the beer out of my hand. And takes a sip, and then someone walks up to him from the other angle. I was like, Tom. He turns around, holsters the beer in his jacket pocket. Like he had holstered it a hundred times before and went and shook the guy's hand. And I stood there, and I was more amazed that Tom Brokaw was able to put a beer in his pocket, in his jacket, <laughs> than with him just kind of making my cold beer out of my hands. That's I could good, go get a new one. That's a good story. <laughs> I think he was too cold to fish because he was in Belize for maybe a week or two and it was 50 degrees and drizzling. Right. He's a, he's a big fly fisherman, obviously. I've, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the year before I just hung out with flip pallet for an afternoon, just, just like chilling on a bench at healing waters. Like what the heck? Hmm. I, I interviewed him a couple times, a little bit. His wife put a bumper sticker of, of something on my car too. I was like, yeah, if it wasn't for these podcasts, I would not probably be interacting with these people. 
Do you ever see yourself doing any other podcasts, along, uh, you know, alongside the Fly Fishing Consultant podcast? Like anything that's maybe not fishing related? You ever think Sandwiches. about that? I think a sandwich podcast. I just mentioned that last week on uh, a chat with Solo Stove. That yeah, I could do a sandwich one. That or chicken fingers. Hmm. What what what's your favorite meal? I know you're a big foodie. So what what if you're is it is it smoker related or if you're sitting down for your favorite meal right now, what would it be? And we probably crush some some kind of like tandoori Indian chicken with basmati rice, some really good Indian yogurt, homemade dal, some garlic naan without cilantro, maybe some kingfisher beer. Hmm. That's what I grew up eating. Sands the beer, but yeah, I grew up not eating normal food you would say like no yep. you didn't like eat meatloaf and mashed potatoes for dinner we had more exotic things a lot of good indian food where i'm at actually and yeah, uh, kingfisher beer that that's good I, it works i thought indian food in dc because you could literally eat any cuisine you want there's a chinese restaurant up the street but it's not technically chinese it's i can't say it mong h-m-o-u-n-g okay like a sub Chinese population, religious sect, you can eat anything here. So I thought Indian food was top notch until I went to London. And I want to recommend you make Dishoom Ruby chicken. We make that on the Traeger and it is, it's, it's a 10 out of 10. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was really exposed to really different Indian food, you're what make, it could be. You're making me a little hungry right now. Sorry. Talk, talk to me about snakeheads. Cause I always, I don't even. I didn't even know what the heck a snakehead was until I, I heard you mention it a long time ago. Uh, so what are they, and why are they in your neighborhood? So I had never really heard of them either until I'd say college. They were on our. So we had to know and identify every fresh and saltwater fish in Virginia by Latin name, family, and common name. So genus, species, family, common name, either fresh or pickled, and on the list was Chana Argus snakehead, and there were none in the lab, but somehow it was listed as a fish of Virginia. So I I memorized it. It went away. And then in 2004 or 2002, Crofted, Maryland, about 30 miles, 20 miles due east of D.C., some guy caught one in a pond. And it just – that's when the, the term Frankenfish was coined, and they made snakehead movies. And then it quieted down. They killed them all out of there and – we didn't hear from them for a couple of years. And then some guy dumped four of them in the Potomac river and they have just exploded. These are fish from the Southeast Asian to Mongolian rural mountains area. And they're the toughest damn fish you will ever come across. Hmm. They breathe air preferably over using their gills. So they'll come up like a turtle, take a breath. They can stay out of water for about a week. It takes seven to eight hits normally with a baseball bat to the skull to kill them that doesn't always work uh, you don't, you'll find weird stuff we found styrofoam in the throat of one my friend chad he caught one that had a battery in the stomach wow they'll freeze solid in ice and then you can chip the ice away and they'll start flopping around is that right they are the weirdest fish they look like three foot long anacondas and they grow five feet i'm sorry five pounds their first year so a five-pound fish is perfectly clean and healthy, even living in urban waters, because it doesn't have that time for the chemicals to accumulate in their flesh. And they will hit flies, not like they will lures. You can go out with 
lures and bait casters all day and catch them. But it's a real challenge with a fly rod. Enough that if a client gets one, they get a case of beer and a free trip. Hmm. And they're everywhere. People catch them and dump them in the lakes and reservoirs. That's sad. And the last one my client caught, it was his last cast of the day. We were shad fishing. It was a uh, shad fly and the damsel fly. And he's like, oh, I hooked something. And it was just weird. It looked like he foul hooked it. So I'm packing up, zipping my backpack, getting ready to put it on my shoulder. And then the fish comes up and we see it's a snakehead. Drop everything. And I walk out into the water with a net and landed it. It was six and a half pounds. And we hit it in the head eight or nine times with a rock. So it was bludgeoned. That didn't kill it. So then a bystander stabbed it three times through the back of the head to sever its dorsal spine. And then we scooped it up in a net to walk out with it, and it started flopping again. That's, uh, I mean, it's like the opposite of a trout or any indigenous species for the most part that you find in North right. America. I mean, right, the, that sounds kind of bulletproof. They are. Uh, you can shoot them with bows, and it'll bounce off their skull. So bow hunting is very popular to go out at night and shoot them. People make like 4 to $5 a pound selling them commercially, we whereas should, black market, you get $80 a fish. We should preface this because obviously we don't, we don't usually talk about killing fish for no reason, but these are obviously an invasive species that, uh, there's no rules on them. Needs to as go. long as you don't snag them or shoot them with a bow from land in DC, you're fine. Once you're in a boat, there's no rules. So yeah. People go out with, they're called alligator hooks. You get them on Amazon. They're one ounce. And they put them on spinning rods with rope. And then when the snakeheads come up to breathe, they snag them and drag them on shore. Hmm. So they're kind of like the craziest things uh, you'll ever see. I mean, there's not that many fish on the planet that breathe air r rather than through their gills, right? I mean, there's a few, but there's not Preferably. a lot. Yeah. People that's... cut their gills out and throw them back in thinking that'll kill them. And it doesn't. I just, that's amazing to me. So... Um, do they put up a good fight when you catch them? Yeah, they're nasty creatures. I stopped using hemostats because of them because I don't want them to bite my hand. There's like six or seven types of teeth. They have fangs. They have teeth like a largemouth. They've got cat-like teeth on the back row. Their mouth is just made to grab and not let go. Hmm. And they're they're pretty aggressive once you hook one. They're not nice animals. So talk to me about the guiding that you're doing there. What other species are you chasing in the Metro DC area? So springtime, if I go seasonally, we'll start St. Patrick's Day is to April 1. That's when the shad come in. So it's shad primarily for the first month of the shad run and then the striped bass start coming in. So then we can do shad and stripers at the same time. And then all of a sudden the snakehead appear. They're awake. So now you got shad, striped bass, Snakehead, largemouth, all mixed in with catfish. So you don't know what you're going to get. There's 20 species in one hole you can land. The white perch come in. So you, And we're fishing two flies, so you never know what you're going to get. Shad and a striper, 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 uh, tilapia and a striper. Tilapia? Really? Yeah. So you can go to the grocery store and buy fish. One rumor is that monks buy them and release them that they would pay homeless men a dollar a fish to go to the grocery store and buy them. Another theory I've heard is that in traditional Chinese meals, it's a good luck sign to release a fish into the wild. So our whole Potomac is full of giant goldfish and tilapia. They hang around the warm sewage discharges in the winter. Oh, I saw some enormous. footage of that. I don't know. 
underneath bridges and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, so that's the spring run. And then that sort of tapers off when the the long nose, no spotted gar come in. So we start with shad and then we end with four foot long gar. And then from May, June, July, August, it's pretty much striped bass and snakehead hunting. And the striped bass, the largemouth and the snakeheads occupy the same exact niche. They're going to be under a stump, under a dock, right. under a lily pad. They're going to eat a clouser. They're going to eat a frog. They're going to eat the same exact flies you'd use for large and smallmouth. They're going to eat. And now it's cooling off. So we're focusing on striped bass right now. We got a hog of a largemouth. My client Rajesh had never fly fished before. And he's got this huge clouser on for a striper with a damselfly behind it. He says, you know, I think there's going to be a fish in that little spot. And it was behind a rock under a waterfall of about a foot, just foam everywhere. Because we had four inches of rain last last week. Wow. And he throws it in there. And I'm not paying attention. I turn around and I see this mouth the size of like, you could put a baby's head in it. I mean, it was enormous. And I grabbed the thing. It probably weighed four and a half pounds. It didn't have any holes in its mouth. It was the first time that fish had ever been caught, and it was huge. I had to take a picture with him. And, yeah, we'll be doing stripers probably through Thanksgiving. We do a lot of that right under the where the runway starts at National Airport across from D.C. by the Pentagon. So it's super loud. <laughs> that, just, that just sounds really weird to me. I'm yeah. sorry. Like, you know, here I'm in Canada. We're fishing some uh, pretty wide open country. But when, at the end of the, you know, the the runway <laughs> by the Pentagon. <laughs> right. Right uh, there. Right I there. I prefer the planes landing because it's much more quiet. There's not a lot of bald eagles around there, is there? Bald eagles. We have more ospreys in the D.C. metro area than anywhere else in the world. Is that right? Yeah. It's the amount of birds here. Huh. That spot used to have this old dead tree and every night at dusk four or five night herons would land on it and then start fishing as the tide drops along the shore seagulls wood ducks hmm. you'd be i mean the, the 70 to 75 percent of actual washington dc is park it's all woods right there's a lot of wildlife around here that's cool biggest snake i've ever seen in the wild was at it got sucked through the tunnel there at the airport and came out and i was like oh i gotta go get that snake and my client was like could you Please not. And it's on YouTube where I filmed it, where I grabbed, I lifted its back of the tail up with my boot and it was almost as wide as my corker size 11. And corkers was like, you need to get that in a better picture next time. And then it went up on shore and I filmed it. What kind of snake? Black racer, maybe. Okay. It was probably nine to 10 feet long. Hmm. I mean, it was nothing like I'd ever seen. And I've lived in Northern Virginia other than working at fly shop in Florida and Colorado. I've lived here my whole life. And I was filming it, and it bit my camera. <laughs> that was startling. And then, so that's the north end of the runway. The south end of the runway is four-mile run. So once we taper off and the water gets too cold for the warm water species, then we go down to the sewage outflow. So that water is 1,700 gallons a minute. You're killing 65 me. 65 degrees Fahrenheit. That's sewage and outflow. It's crystal, yep. It's crystal clear, and it's steamy on a cold day, and you can catch fish on dry flies all winter in a snowstorm. And because it's warm on the outgoing tide, all the fish out in the river follow that warmth. So you never know what's going to swim up there. You might see a school of 70 largemouth. We'll see largemouth in the winter that look like baby tuna. 
Wow. There used to be carp up there that you'd stand on the bridges and look down and it'd be nothing but carp. But they're not there anymore. I blame fish brain for that. Do you know what I love is you you so embrace your home waters like like nobody I've ever heard. Yeah, I grew up fishing just around until I had a driver's license and I never really fished outside of Reston unless my dad took us somewhere. Hmm. So it was all just fishing creeks and beaver dams and wherever. Have you got any crazy stories that have happened to you in your time on the water as far as uh, you won't believe this, but this actually happened type thing? We get a lot of largemouth and stripers that eat other fish off our line. So that usually freaks clients out. Yeah. Uh, we have seen some, there's always crazy stuff down at, Ch so it's Chain Bridge is where we do the striped bass fishing. The bridge was built originally for the Union to cross into Virginia and bring ammo and guns. It was, it was the narrowest spot on the river. It's the fall line. Captain John Smith went there years ago. That's where they said they could scoop up the fish with their frying pans. And you'll, this water is absolutely deadly. You get about two dozen drownings between Great Falls and D.C. a year, if not more. I mean, a kid was just rescued last night by off-duty lifeguards out there. Hmm. And you'll see people just jump. There's one guy had a piece of driftwood, and he jumped off a rock and would go down 100 yards and get out and go back up. And most of us know you go in that water, you're going to die. And I just see crazy things out there where – there will be a rock sticking out at low tide and a rowboat will go up and drop someone off in maybe 30 feet of water. And the water's moving. I mean, I can't tell you how fast it is. Uh, you know, police boats can't get through there with two, 350 horsepowers on. It is raging. And they'll just drop someone off and leave them there and row away. I have to call the U.S. Park Police almost every 10, 15 minutes sometimes to report the crazy near-death experiences I see. Wow. Just amazing lack of consciousness of where people are. Yeah, not respecting the the environment. We've seen blue herons eat chipmunks. <laughs> really? That's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Wow. Yeah, there's been some other weird stuff. And a lot of just weird things you find that wash down river. Right. We saw it. So at the sewage outflow... I mean, nothing grows in there. It is like, if there's been a storm, it's just white sand, like the Caribbean, if it's been scoured out. And there was a hot day in July, two women put in with an inflatable raft and were using their hands as paddles. <laughs> My client and I were like, I mean, if you're in that water enough you, for a male, you will grow breasts. There's that much estrogen in the river, specifically at that point of the river. And these women are just like playing in it. And we're like, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy. I'm going to ask you to put on your artist hat. So, um, and I know you do a lot of guiding, but I want to know your perfect day in your words, paint us a picture. What does that look like? When does it start in the morning or is it evening? Like walk us through your ideal day, Rob, on the water. I normally would say steelhead, but it's so physically brutal being out in that cold winter weather that it just hurts. But I love steelhead fishing. I'd probably say, my buddies, we get up four in the morning. They all have their coffee. We're suited up. We're outside cleaning the snow off our car, getting to the river two hours before daylight just to claim a spot, sitting there eating hot food from home on a stove, steelhead fishing all day. We go straight from the parking lot at three or four o'clock to the fly shop. 
get materials to replace everything we lost that day, go back, hot shower, drink, tie flies, watch movies, go to bed, do it again. That is, I absolutely love that. And it really hurts me that we can't do it this year. Two pounds of bacon? What's that? The bacon? Two pounds of cook? bacon. Would there be two pounds? Of, would there be two oh. pounds of bacon in the morning? I'd never even cooked bacon until four years ago up there. It was the first time I ever bought and cooked bacon. <laughs> uh, the, the steelhead for seven days did not bite anything. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna learn how to cook bacon while we're just sitting here. <laughs> but my second favorite is gonna be tailwater fishing in Colorado. And I used to work out there, and I would do the morning shift in the shop and then drive out there, fish the evening hatch, sleep in my car in the parking lot, wake up, fish the trichos for a couple hours, terrestrials when it got warmer, and then I'd be back in the shop for the afternoon shift the next day. That was that was very rewarding. Those trichos are pretty cool. Yeah, I do a little split-tailed one. I use uh, paintbrush bristles. Yeah. And then I use foam, Evisote foam for the body and fold it over with a spinner synthetic wing material. Uh, plastic bag works great. Bubble wrap works even better if you can keep the bubbles intact. Hmm. We tie them out of garbage at my buddy Justin's house in Colorado, and, and he caught more fish than anybody that day. It was just garbage on his kitchen table, an old paintbrush plastic wrap and green sewing string you should do like a fly tying challenge with just the weirdest materials the stuff i have in front of me right now i, I was just tying with korean scrub yarn it's made for uh, weaving your own loofah okay we have a very big korean population here so you go to the lote the korean grocery store and they have it in every color in mylars this one is bright silver so it's fly tire junjin uh what is this stuff you sitting on your fly time bench right now? Yeah, at my desk. The time bench with the computer to the right. It's pretty gross in here. I'm going to vacuum tomorrow. Yeah. Zonkers everywhere. I'm getting into doing steelhead flies to put up online. So there's a lot of marabou everywhere and sucker spawn material, zonker strips. Well, I listened to your, your interview with Sven Diesel, and you're talking about uh, the nuggets that you find in the uh, carpet when you... <laughs> <laughs> You're fat. Oh, I'm bleeding right now. I walked in here barefoot, and I'm already bleeding. Was it so barbless? I my. It was just the the bend of it. So one of my flies, it's called the bass siren, and there's a synthetic ultra suede tail tied on a size ten straight eyed hook, and then when it's in the regal vice, I break the hook off of that because I don't like two articulations yep. with hooks. Yeah, I've done. And that. then when I break them, they just fall down. So you have these little three quarter bends. And if I can't get them out of the carpet, they're kind of in there. So there's a no barefoot rule in here. And of course, I'm barefoot right now. That's because I, I blew out my flip flops last weekend. I'm surprised you're not tying flies from those flip flops like some of those videos I've seen. I'm going to repair them. They're chacos. I'm going to def. I'm going to epoxy them tomorrow, hopefully. I got a new pair on the way. So I'm having to wear shoes. I really don't wear shoes in the, the summer. No, I mean, me, just flip flops me until the first frost. You ever try the rare yeah, earth magnet, like super, super strong magnet? So, you know, below your vice, if any hooks kind of go astray that you don't realize, do you ever try picking them up with that, like a magnet? I have a magnetic broom from Home Depot that oh. you just kind of drag across the floor and it picks them all up. Yeah. That works pretty well. Hmm. 
Yeah, I noticed my dog was walking funny one day, and I looked down, and he, uh, thank God it was barbless, but he had a little tiny uh, midge kind of chronomid hook. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. But yeah, no. I'll find hooks and stocks and clothing all the time. I'm like, where did that come from? Or a fly. My wife will put a jacket on her sweater, and there'll be something in the in the back. And I'm like, hold on. Uh, there's something on you there. I'm like, how did that happen? <laughs> do you ever, um, do you do a lot of spun deer hair? That's when I find things get just downright messy. Never. In front of me right here, I have, this is uh, Are You Superfly, Pat Cohen, Fugly Packer. Never used it. I thought about learning to do some hair to tie Shank's cricket, Ed yep. Shank from South Central Pennsylvania, but I all my terrestrials are synthetic. I do foam for everything, and yeah. most of my stuff is foam and synthetics based on the Bill Skilton, where I can create just weird stuff out of foam. And for me, a lot of what we're doing, everything, you know, when I sit down to tie, I'm tying twenty or thirty because we go through so many flies in a day. Because there's so much stuff down there with monofilament and shopping carts. or I knew you were going to say what, shopping carts. I felt that shopping cart coming. They just did a river cleanup yes, yesterday. Let's see what my buddy said. I think they found 200 pounds of garbage at Four Mile. Uh, let's see. We volunteered at Four Mile Run on Saturday morning in the kayak cleanup. Eight people, 120 pounds. Passed a dead raccoon floating. Didn't feel like picking that up. So the problem is they'll take the structure out. There'll be mailboxes and Washington Post dispensers in there. Wow. And people take that out. I'm like, no, clean up the plastic on the shore. Leave the leave the structure. A, leave the structure. Right. We get so many flash floods yeah. that it just wipes everything out. There's been a mattress down there for over a year now by the sewage outflow that ended up there. And that's never coming out. See, it's that's so waterlogged. That's intimate river knowledge right there. I used to be able to say, all right, there's going to be a traffic cone under that tree. There's half a ladder over there. And Arlington County redid that whole shoreline and filled in all the deep holes. So we used to wade that. That would be a year-round wade fishery for me. They were overhanging trees and at low tide because it's tidal sewage outflow. And even at low tide, if it's windy, there'd still be fish in four-foot holes. And they filled it all in and cut all the trees down. And we don't really wait it anymore. And with all the flash floods we get, it's been so scoured that you might be walking and not paying attention and step into a six foot deep just pocket. Hmm. Crazy. Well, and you know, it's, it's, it's not just where you're at. Cause I'll tell you that I, I was doing some cleanup on a Creek very, very near to where I live. And, uh, there's shopping carts in there all the time. And it's like, <laughs> who, who throws shopping cart in the Creek or the river? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me, but. Um, those cleanups are, are so important. Do you do a lot of that as far as restoration in your area, as far as like kind of walk out with more than you walked in with, you know what I mean? Or, um, just kind of, I did before COVID. Right. It definitely at chain bridge when my clients are fishing, I am basically walking around either making piles of garbage or if I've got a trash bag on me, cause we always carry trash bags. If there's gonna be snakeheads because they make so much mucus, you can't just put one in your car. Like they are just covered in slime the second they come out of the water. So there's always garbage bags. So I've got those little trash grabbers. I'm always picking stuff up. Yeah. Um, it's, it can be pretty gross around here. And then just stuff that washes down too. My, my wife told me to stop bringing home soccer balls. <laughs> I get three or four every day on the boat. Wow. They're really good soccer balls. I just give them to the neighborhood kids. 
If you could change something about the pastime of fly fishing, what would it be? Is there something that kind of irks you, Rob, about the day-to-day, or um, is everything just good? I wish we had more public water and not so much private stuff. I wish people would share. But then again, I'm not some wealthy dude who can purchase private water and have it. I would have a probably different philosophy. I just wish there was more places that people could fish and that it gets ruined by litter bugs too. That's another thing. I actually emailed the, the National Park Service and said, I can't guide here at Chain Bridge anymore this year. It's too dirty. I can't take people into a national park that's this filthy. Uh, but in fly fishing, not really. Maybe, you know, rods on shoulders on social media. <laughs> I don't get that. But, okay, so I don't even know what that I means. I wish social media wasn't all about gripping grins. Yeah. People that balance a rod on their shoulder, they'll be standing on a boat in three fathoms of water with an albacore, and that fish is one tail shake away from you jerking. I have clients that can't stand still and hold a bluegill sometimes, and that, they don't even have a rod with them. I think it's very, hmm. uh, what's the word? I, I think it's very unsafe and you're not respecting the gear. And you're also posing longer to take a picture with a fish because you have to sit there and balance it. It looks completely artificial. I don't even, I've never even noticed that. That's, that's weird. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a big social media guy. I'm really horrible at it, but, uh, so you mean balance? I probably Go ahead, sorry. wouldn't be on it. Yeah. I probably wouldn't be on social media doing fishing if it wasn't for my job i'd probably be just be showing pictures of bugs and other stuff i find around the neighborhood and the odd things that just occur in my life yeah no i'm the same i i uh i i would probably not be on facebook but now i kind of have to be because the show's linked to it and you you know what i mean You, you know how that goes i want someone to come out with a rod that doesn't ice up yeah yeah I don't need fast, accurate rods. I need a rod that doesn't ice up. Put some copper wires up that and put a small battery in the fighting butt. What kind of rods Someone what needs do to... you like to use as far as... Because you, you're fishing for some pretty big fish in the uh, Potomac system. I mean, whether it's snakeheads or... Five and eights. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so we can do everything with a five weight, except when we start throwing some bigger flies and it's some bigger habitat, that's when we go to eights. I worked for Orvis for so long, I collected a bunch of Orvis rods. I have Temple Fork Outfitters. I just inherited. I, I get a lot of, of gear from people that just no longer need it. So I inherited a bunch of stuff last year. Right. I got a Winston and nice. a Scott. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So mostly Orvis, those old Cortlands. I have a Douglas. I love the Risen Fly rods. You're not going to find a better bang for your buck in the industry than Risen Fly to Pennsylvania. I just had Ryan on the show a couple weeks ago. Hmm. My clients say, you know, we're, we, we can't afford to be spending, you know, $5,000 to outfit a whole family. Yeah. I say, you can get a whole rod reel, a box of flies, and two liters for under $300 with a warranty. I, yeah, I actually listened to that episode, and it, that was a, I enjoyed listening to him, actually. I, I'd never heard of them before, to be quite honest. Yeah, I met Ryan at shows years ago, and he, I'm telling you, those beads, if you need silver beads, those are the shiniest beads I've seen in, in the industry. Super shiny. But I have his ITB rod. I fished that on Christmas for steelhead. We were fishing it yesterday from the boat for bluegill. If I'm going out, I'm probably taking that rod versus some super expensive high-technology rod. I don't really need the expensive stuff. Warranties are more important because yeah. just the amount of wear and tear. You know, Because I'm not doing just one trip a day. I might be doing – I did one 
three-hour trip of two people on Saturday morning. And then as soon as they got off at the dock, I picked up three people for four hours. So there's a lot of people using and abusing things. And I think one day in July, there were three rods may have been broken mm. or in, in like a two-day period. Are we still good for time or do you have to go? I don't, I don't, I, I don't good. assume that. Okay, yeah. cool. Cause I'm really enjoying chatting with you. I just don't want to. Haven't even looked at the clock. Okay, man. Um, yeah. So I, I need, I need gear that is going to take a beating from people dropping the rods on boulders and rocks and dragging them. It's the gear that I just know I can trust that, that doesn't break down. Yeah. But I've seen weird stuff. I've seen bluegills breaking eight weight. Hmm. I can't tell you. Well, you, when we started off this this chat, you told me that basically the first time you went fly fishing, you broke your brother's fly rod. <laughs> I thought, yeah, oh no, it's a bad habit. Uh, well, I mean, I, do you know want to know something funny, yeah. Rob? I got probably. I know you say the lifetime warranty is important, and for me, it totally is. But I will tell you that I probably have four rods that are in more than four pieces that I have never done a thing with that I paid a lot of money for, and I just for whatever reason I never send them back. Always have a spare rod when you go out, though. That's why I always tell people, don't just buy one rod. Yeah. Because you're going to drive five hours and break it. Just, doing, just taking it out of the car, it'll break. Yeah. I. Uh, it doesn't take much. That's They also need to make a rod that doesn't break. They got ugly sticks for spinning. Why can't they have an ugly stick five weight? Yeah, well, there's probably, if it's somehow reinforced. I mean, the, the, the problem is, is you're always adding weight. I mean, the durability, and probably I think you'd give up a lot of the lightness of the rod, but I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm no expert on rods. I know what I like. I like fast-action rods, personally, but I'm not going to lie to you. It intrigues me, all these guys fishing, like, these blue halo glass rods and, and that. I, you know, it's kind of simpler time, but it, I'm not really familiar with that. And there's so many rods out there now. When you go to the shows, there's so many rod and reel manufacturers when I started working in the fly shop 20 years ago, I mean, it was Winston, Sage, Orvis, uh, uh, you know, Fenwick, Fenwick yeah, right. yeah and, and a couple others. There were just were not a whole lot of brands. And now, I mean, it's like craft breweries. You know, you you can't drive more than five miles in Northern Virginia without almost bumping into a brewery somewhere. But that's cool, right? Like, I mean, and that that's one thing I love. It diversifies exactly, it. Exactly, and it's not... It's not always mainstream. Like I had the guys from Mondo on the guys, some of these guys that are like, they're trying to appeal to a younger generation and they're saying, okay, we may not be the most expensive, but, um, it's quality gear and it's some funky new color and it's some funky new material. Like I, I kind of get excited by that because technology hasn't really changed. I mean, it, it has in the graphite world, but it's, you know, I always look at like uh, like an Orvis rod, and I fish I fish an Orvis rod, and I love it. But it's they're so expensive for the high high end. And you you mentioned Douglas and uh, TFO. I mean, there's some bang for your buck too. And honestly, do I notice a huge difference? I'm I'm no I'm not a guide. You spend a lot of time on the water, but I mean, there's a time and a place for a high end rod. But I think you know if you can be in the two three hundred dollar lifetime warranty range, you're probably in you're probably in a sweet spot. You know. That ITB is $156 just for the rod. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Lifetime warranty. And lifetime warranty. Hmm. Yeah, I've never uh, I've never seen those. And that's the Risen one. Yep. Yeah. 
What um what do you got going on with the podcast coming up for the rest of 2020? Anything uh, you want to share with with my listeners as far as uh, where you're taking it or where you're going next? I honestly don't have much plans after like next week. I have a doctor's appointment at the end of the month, but <laughs> because of COVID, I we just don't have anything. Yeah, it's just blank. There's no steelhead trips planned. There's no Thanksgiving travel. Uh, so I've got a couple of people I've known since 99, 2000 from the industry. I've got some more stuff. I don't always want to do interviews. I like to break mine up. That's the way it started was sort of like a classroom situation where I'm going to sit down and imagine you were in a classroom and I'm Professor Fly Fisherman and each different episode would be a subject. So I want to do a little more talking, but sometimes I just need the inspiration for that. Yeah. A client will say something one day, and I'm like, you know what? Yeah, that's going to be a podcast. All right, I got to take out my phone and, and send myself a note. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And then we've got art coming on. So we're, we've been doing, since COVID, uh, art and I have discussed nymphs, dry flies, streamers. We're going to do terrestrials next to round off the end of summer. And then we're going to do a whole nymph episode coming up do you ever worry worry about running out of content or running out of guests does that ever does that even enter your mind at this point not for me so much but the people that can do a blog post per day i don't get that i, I think there's you really there's i mean there's a lot of fly fishing every once a week to do something yeah but i don't get daily yeah that's a bit extreme for me that feels like you're feeding people things that they really don't need to know how often do you post on social are you like that with social too is it um i mean i heard sven talking today and he's basically posting a couple times a day on instagram and i'm just thinking to myself like i if that's all you're doing i guess you got time for that but I, I just don't i i don't have that much content yeah it's been slow for me i'll have times where i'll post i used to post a lot more random stuff and then now I look at it and it's three weeks of posts in the last four posts. I'm like, wow, I really haven't posted anything. It's also just been raining a lot here. We got about 10 inches of rain in August. And then I guess the tropical depression is going to miss us at the end of this week. But it's been raining so much. I haven't been out as much to take pictures of things. And then when I want to take pictures of other things, I have to just question myself. Is anyone actually going to find that interesting? So I got to wait for the right moment. So today we had Bob the butterfly hatch in the front yard and we just got super close to him and took pictures. So I posted those. So big black and orange butterfly on a late fall, orangey yellow and black, black eyed Susan flower. It looked pretty cool. cool. Do you name everything? I mean, you name your meat smoker, your butterflies. Do you name your rods? You know? The twins, that, they're the only ones that have names. I have two, I have a nine foot and a nine and a half foot six weight. Orvis, uh, not the, it was before the Helios. Uh, Clearwater? Uh, no, they're blue. Don't. Hydros. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the six weights are the twins. They have sink tips on them year round, and it's pretty much always either Clouser and a Snow White Damsel or a Shad Jig and a Snow White Damsel. And I just call them the twins. They just, they get used so often. Yeah. But I always had my daughter name things we'd find. Mm-hmm. Like animals, butterflies, caterpillars. Like, Who's that? Just that Jimmy. <laughs> I'm like, all right. <laughs> so, yeah, we name all the birds. We have Fred and Ginger that live in the front. And then the crayfish was George and Martha until George ate Martha. And then he ate Mr. Guppy. 
And then our dog's name was Dr. Jones. You ever think about going into stand-up? I think you might have a career there. My neighbor, Camelia, Rob's wife, there's nine Robs in the neighborhood. She's like, I need to make money off you. Nine Robs in your neighborhood. Yes, we have. Let's see. Tall Rob moves, but he still hangs out sometimes. So there's Sheriff Rob, Reclusive Rob, Tall Rob, Wisconsin Rob, Camelia's Rob. There's me. Uh, Sheriff Rob, Wisconsin. When we're at the pool, I always yell, like, there's another Rob here. And so I wanted to have a table just reserved for Rob's this year and then get Rob T-shirts made. That's cool. We never got that far because of stupid Corona. We had all these plans for the summer. I'm the one that gets to pick the themes for Friday nights, too. And I'll go all out. I'll see if I can just feed like 30 people for 20 bucks and make it just nuts. Do you ever wonder how the heck you got into the business you're into and what you're doing? Like when you look back at your career, like talk to me about day jobs. Did you do something? What what were you doing before you were guiding and doing your podcasting? What was your day job back in the day? So crazy story. And I said on the podcast once, ask this story and you'll, you'll hear it. So I was a high school teacher Hmm. and my buddy and I went out one night. My wife was out of town, and I was like, dude, let's just go get a pint of Guinness and, like, a whiskey. And we end up at a nudie bar in D.C. And I don't think I – no, we, so we used to go to nudie bars with the Orvis crew. We used to get the high school kid in there. That's a whole nother story. And the nudie bars in D.C. are – they're not special. The women look like they're waiting for a bus. They're just standing there, and they expect money. And we're at this high-end bar in D.C., and we're on the second floor, and we're in the way back at a communal table. With like 10 guys all just mixed like we're at a hibachi restaurant and the guy next to me leans in and he's like hey man so we're out of town do you know where we can do some fly fishing for trout when we're here and i'm looking around for cameras like what like who's <laughs> what's going on and i said you know what i'm so far away i can't even see these bored women i'm just gonna hang out and talk trout fishing so i waved down the waitress i got a sharpie and a pad of paper and i drew him a map to big hunting creek and then the next morning, I got home, slept off the hangover, and which is something I'll, I never want to have again. You'll hear those at the podcast. They'll slowly, from 11 years ago, the hangovers are going to decrease to none. Yeah, it's funny. I Correct. did notice that. Yeah, just different lifestyle now. That's good. I think it's the kid, too, because she's always up early. Keeps you honest. And I woke up and just built a website and started advertising $10 an hour casting lessons on Craigslist for beer money. And then... That's where it started, honestly, was being at a, a nudie bar, just the right place at the right time. Someone asked me information. And I said, why should I let the fly shop take all the money and the credit for this when I could just do it myself? And then one day I was at, I, so I left teaching, went into a biotech firm job, got laid off three months of the day with another coworker for, I had no excuse. They told her that she was going to a night school for an subject unrelated to her current job at the biotech firm and they fired her that's weird so i got uh i went into government consulting after that and then i left that like three years into it just said you know what i can't do the corporate thing anymore and all because of that one dude at the strip club Hmm. and then i ran groupon and sold thousands of two-hour trips when i first started so i went with one to two clients to 20 to 30 a day wow! for seven months. Hmm. It was insane. It went from April to Labor Day, minimum 
four two-hour trips a day, seven days a week. Where do you get where do you get joy in your life right now? Is it is it mostly from spending time on the water? Is it doing interviews with other people? Is it hanging out with your daughter? Is it is what's kind of feeding people's always feeding people? Awesome. Oh yeah, Feed, making people just feeding them and giving them. You can't walk by our house without getting a cocktail or a nibble if we're outside. Where do you get that from? Is that is that something you inherited maybe from your folks or is that something? Yeah, my parents were always cooking and entertaining. And because they're the people that could cook and make drinks, people would hang out with them. And we're the ones that measure and make cocktails and, and just kind of do things differently, mm-hmm. kind of elevate our food. It's basic food, but we just elevate it. And when I met my wife 20 years ago, we both just started entertaining all the time, no matter where we lived with our neighbors. And now here, I'm going to be bummed this fall when we're all, you know, 30 people in a backyard all eating some big buffet and then you just walk home. I host dads night twice a year in our backyard dudes and dads for the, the guys that don't have kids and I'll just cook for 30 dads and just everyone brings a six pack to contribute. You can take beer home with you and I'll have people in the backyard from 5 PM till two in the morning and just, it's so much fun. <laughs> Bring all the dads together that might not normally hang out together too. Yeah. Well, those that's like a block, it's like a block now. party kind of thing too. That's kind of uh yeah, it's fun stuff. Yeah, it's just, I've never been in a place like this. We moved here for the school, which you can't even attend really now. So where were you before you were in D.C.? We were in Annandale, which is the Korean neighborhood in Northern Virginia where everything is Korean. Okay. Like literally everything is Korean. The bakeries are Korean. The coffee shops are Korean. The grocery stores are Korean. Up until there was only one place to get a burger until about four years ago. And we were in a two-bedroom condo. And when we had the kid, we outgrew it. And my first drift boat was parked on the street there and got hit by a drunk. So we we looked at houses for years and just couldn't decide because my wife then was only 45-minute bus ride to the Pentagon. Only like six miles, but 45 minutes. And then my wife and I went to a party in Bethesda at one of my DC United buddies' houses. And she went to the neighbor's house and came back after like one drink and said, we need to move. She's like, I need a house now. And that next Monday, we looked at this place. We walked in, and we're like, oh, yeah. And it's only it's the first time we've lived outside the Beltway since 2001. And it's just this quiet, super quiet neighborhood where everyone's just really cool. Right on. If there is one benefit to COVID, it's seeing everybody walking by. We'll just set up chairs on the end of the driveway with drinks and just talk to everybody that goes by. And I, apparently, I know everybody in the neighborhood – that's the big joke. Like, I know everybody and their dogs. Well, they're all named Rob. We know on. that. Yeah, it's not that hard. You yell Rob <laughs> at the pool yesterday. Because we're all sitting like seven or eight feet away from each other in a giant circle. And, so, and Camille yells, Rob. And I jumped and turned. She always does that. It's the way she shouts. It's like her Persian way of shouting at him. And I jump in my seat. <laughs> and I'm trying to get all these dads out on the boat. They always want to go fishing. It's just schedule-wise. I don't want to row Don, my neighbor next door. He's like six four. <laughs> Rowing big dudes is exhausting. So you're still fishing out of a drift boat, obviously. Drift boat or or on foot. Yeah. What's your pre- what's the your the only preference? spot we really waited? I like the drift boat because so when we're shad fishing, you stand in one spot and the fish come to you. Four mile run, you hide behind a tree or a bush, and it's like a bus. Every minute or two, some largemouth will just swim upstream. 
Everywhere else, we got to go look for the fish. Rowing keeps me in shape somewhat, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But I do like just not having to drag the trailer. I already had the hubs blow up like twice this year. Hmm. Driving. Uh, one, three times. Yeah, I got the wrong hubs installed, and those blew up too. You're sitting on the boat's you're fun. You're sitting on a lot of great stories. I mean, you you'll say something in passing that I'm like, I had this drift boat, and then this drunk guy drove by and blew my boat up. I'm like, that's a story. Well, it was that's... a girl who was a point two four hit and run. She took out four cars, broke the axles, and then the next weekend they put a speed bump in right <laughs> right there. It was a twenty five mile an hour. She went sixty five, hit and run. I got a police call that I needed to move my boat parked on a residential sidewalk. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, officer. My boat's parked on the gravel. He had to say four times, your, boat's been, your boat is on the sidewalk. And then he said it's been involved in a car accident. <laughs> and this was a trailer that didn't have uh, a wheel on the front. So the nose, the bow of the boat was on the ground. That boat and trailer went 81 steps uphill and rested on the sidewalk after she hit it and bent the boat like a V. Did you fix it? We tried to, and then I was just like, there's no way. And then I remember I'd met Stealthcraft the year before at the Somerset Fly Fishing Show. And I said, if I'm ever going to get another drift boat, it'll be yours. And then I got one. And it is not. The only thing they had in common is they float. (laughs) Really, there's no comparison. Yeah, they're good-looking boats for sure. And we're going to start doing night trips for stripers. So I'll get those batteries charged up. There's a lake down the street that's full of snakeheads now. So, and it's a 24-hour boat ramp. It's got musky, walleye, largemouth, and thousands of snakeheads. Are they fairly nocturnal, those snakeheads? I don't know. I don't really go out much at yeah, night no, anymore. I used to night fish. Yeah. I would go out all the time trout fishing at night, striper fishing until 4 in the morning. Not anymore. Yeah. Well, I hear you. He's still... We used to do the snakehead tournament. That was overnight, and we never saw one snakehead in three years. Hmm. Crazy. And then they stopped doing the tournament. So, you know, we got to get all your social out there all year. So if somebody wants to book a guided trip with you in the kind of Metro D.C. area or they want to check out your podcast, I know they can do this at all one place, but, Rob, why don't you throw out all your... uh, your social media handles and your dot com. And my real name is Snow White. People always say, well, that's your fishing made up name. I'm like, if I made up a fishing name, it wouldn't have been Snow White. So, yes, that is my real last name. And no, I don't have seven kids and it's not a reservation for seven. And I've, I've heard it all. So, robsnowwhite.com, one word, one W. Rob Snow White for Twitter, Instagram. I think on Facebook too. I don't really post too much directly to my Facebook page. It's more of just linked right. when the podcast or Twitter goes yeah, up. Yeah, me too. I, you're on Instagram quite anywhere a bit, else, though, aren't you? Yeah. So I when I I worked at the FDA for a couple of years, and I was a web developer for visually impaired people. So I had years of, of internet training, I guess. So I've definitely have made my mark. If you Google me, a lot of things are going to come up. I have, I've definitely have done my SEO research over the last 20 years. I mean, I remember doing websites. In fact, XML is how you used to have to upload to iTunes. It would have been maybe 300 lines of code 
And if you had one thing wrong, it wouldn't upload. So you had to go back through all that code to figure it out. Oh, man. It was a nightmare. You had to have the length of the show, the megabytes, URL of the image. It had all this stuff. And then you're using Libsyn now, right? No, I'm not a Libsyn guy. I'm uh, Sound- SoundCloud, okay. actually. I was actually going to ask you but that question. Yeah, so Libsyn, I was up at Orvis, Vermont in 2011, I think for the guide rendezvous, which was just like eight dudes hanging out in the rain before it became a huge event. And their guy was like, yeah, use Libsyn. You can track everything. And then I don't think I did anything with Libsyn until I talked to April at uh, April Voki at iCast once. She's like, yeah, do it. You can check all your stats. And then I went on. I was like, dude, that's pretty cool. I never really knew how many people listened before that. Yeah. SoundCloud's good for that. I just kind of did the podcast, you know, not even really knowing if anybody even listened to it for years. Right. Until I started getting recognized in fly shops and bars, which is weird. Yeah. Just because of my voice. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. And and you know what the show you're doing is I like it because it's so organic. There's no you're not trying to be something you're not. It's just conversation and I, I just I really love love what you're doing and uh I, I appreciate you taking the time tonight because I know you're a busy guy. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, is there anything else? If I can never get up to BC again. Well, you know, it, I was up there once. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And if I'm ever in DC, I will give you a shout because I want to chase some uh, snakeheads um, in some shopping cart near the near the terminal terminal uh, of the airport. You can do it right by the monuments. The monuments. You can do it right next to the US Mint, the Washington Monument. That's pretty cool. It's all there. there. There's fish two blocks from the White House. Really? Yeah, they'll stock a pond there. Hmm. You may remember a man drove a tractor into there with a bunch of dynamite strapped to it 19 years ago and shut down the city. My wife and I were at a restaurant and couldn't leave. Luckily, it was open bar. I just you, They didn't have any food, though. Yes, yeah, so he had a tractor full of fake dynamite, and he drove it to D.C. and drove it into the pond, and they shut the whole mall area down where basically all the federal government is run hmm. for like two days. It was a cluster. Is there anything you don't have a story about? <laughs> not really like, that's, they, that's why I wanted to do a write, be a writer because I've just seen I see strange things all the time yeah. and I figure I can talk my wife always tells me to stop talking she's put me in time out before we were at a bar one night before a Vaco concert and she's like time out just go sit in the corner and they, I had to go with the wait staff and roll napkins with forks in them <laughs> not, yeah embarrassing yeah that's funny and apparently I'm loud too when I talk. That's why she yelled at me. You know, I'm the opposite. I don't, I don't actually even like talking. I, I talk, I like, and that's honestly why I started this podcast. Cause I want to get your story. I want to hear other people's stories and be the conduit for that. Cause I mean, I, I'm a horrible storyteller. So I rely on you for your stories and, and other people I've had on the show. But and that's another thing Hold on, with, with clients, you have to choose which stories you tell, but when you're out there for four or eight hours, Rowing a boat, you've got to entertain them. Yeah. So there's always stories coming out of the woodwork for clients. Well, and I think, too, the, the more diverse life experience you've had, probably the better guide you are. It's been a diverse 43 years. <laughs> All right. Well, take care of that meat smoker. Uh, chase some snakeheads and uh, keep up the good work with the podcast and the guiding. Rob, thanks, thanks so much for coming on, man. Ha- have yourself a great night. My pleasure. And if your end didn't record for some reason, I think mine end is recording because I've had three or four episodes not record. 
that would kill me. And this is, I'll, just so you know, this is the longest podcast I've ever done. So um, kudos to you. <laughs> and right we'll on. talk soon. Keep the good, good work up. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Mm-hmm.